Well, I'm not going to lie, I was so excited when I saw that they were going to sing that song. I want you to think about that for a second. It didn't say, he will overcome. It's he has. It's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, Jesus comes to us and says, look, in this world you will have trouble, and we'll talk about that today. And we know that by our own experience. Like, we don't need the Bible to come tell us that. We know that. But fear not, he says, for I have overcome the world. He's overcome it. And there's a day coming when we will experience the fullness of that overcoming. He's overcome it not just for himself. He's overcome it for us. But even now, in the midst of the difficulties that we go through, Christ has overcome them in the sense that he takes them, he redeems them, he uses them, he brings good out of them. We're like, oh, deliver me. He's like, you know what? There's a real sense in which you're delivered. Because I'm going to make this beautiful. And I'm making it beautiful even now when you can't see it. It's an astonishing thought. He has overcome, not he will. So with that in mind, we're going to begin a study of the book of 2 Corinthians. If you've been with us at all, you know that we've been studying through 1 Corinthians. And last week we wrapped it up. And today as we enter into this study of 2 Corinthians, I kind of want to stop. And before we just jump in, I want to tell you something that's happened that's really, I think, significant and informative in the life of the Apostle Paul between the writings of these two books that he authored. And here's what it is. It's suffering. Paul has suffered massively, which makes a lot of sense out of the way that he begins this book, because he begins the book by talking about suffering. Why? Because he's just experienced it big time in spades. And we know this because Luke, in the book of Acts, records it for us. He tells us what happens. So when you go into the book of Acts, chapter 19, beginning in verse 23, Luke says, oh, okay, just before 2 Corinthians, you want to know what happened? Here it is. He says that at about that time, what happened? Well, there arose no little disturbance, which is really just Luke's way of saying a great big disturbance concerning the way. And I want to talk about that for a second because you read that and go, what is that? What's the way? Well, Paul has been doing ministry in the city of Ephesus. That's where he wrote 1 Corinthians from. And I think just after he escaped, he then wrote 2 Corinthians. But just as he did in Corinth, he founded a church. He's been preaching the gospel. People have been coming to faith. He's been training up elders and deacons and all kinds of things. He is getting a community of faith going in this particular city. And the way is how the unbelievers, the non-Christians in that city, referred to the Christians in that church that Paul had gotten up and running. They called them people of the way. And you say, well, the way of what? The way of Jesus. But really, what's the question? What is the way of Jesus? What is it? It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of self-denial. It's the way of daily dying to sin and dying to yourself so that you might live unto righteousness and unto Christ. When Jesus comes to us and says, let me just encapsulate discipleship in one sentence... Jesus, I'm a bottom line guy. What is it? Okay, well, here it is. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him finally, you know, make a commitment. Let him come to the realization once and for all definitively that this Jesus who lived, suffered, died, and rose again from the dead did that, not just to forgive my sins and purchase an eternity for me, but to purchase me. That I don't belong to me. And that frankly, anything I do that isn't in some way, shape, or form attached to what he's building, this eternal kingdom, is in vain as we talked about the last three weeks. But it doesn't have to be. Look, at some point I've got to say, am I going to go all in on this Jesus or not? Because here's what he calls you to, all in. That's it. There's no other way to follow him. So, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him make that commitment and then in a practical way, all right, well then let him take up his cross daily 
and follow me. Let him make the commitment and then every day get up and say, okay, I'm filled with all kinds of passions today. Here's what I'm going to do with them. I'm going to take them to the cross. I'm going to crucify them so that I might take up the passions of Jesus for this day. I have a mission. I, Tom, and it's about me. So what am I going to do with that mission? Am I going to live that out? Or am I going to take that to the cross and say, no, no, there's a greater mission. There's an actual mission that matters. And that would actually be a better mission for me anyway. And so I'm going to crucify that. And I have to do that every day. So I'm going to crucify that today so that I might live to his mission. My plans, agendas, ambitions, aspirations. You get the point. We lay those things down daily so that by the power of the Spirit, in community with one another, in obedience to the word of Christ, we might go do what those people who went to China did that Ryan talked about before that song. Except maybe you're a missionary to Bethany Christian School. Maybe you're a missionary to your family or to your business. Maybe you don't have to go to China. Maybe. Or maybe you do. Is that so crazy that we can't consider stuff like that? I think we should see some of that. I really do. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are a missionary. But you've got to crucify that you might live that out. And as we talked about the last three weeks, as we looked at that great chapter on resurrection and all that it guarantees us as followers of Christ, and we heard that great mission statement of Paul, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We talked also about the kind of person it takes, the kind of heart that we need to have that. What kind of heart is that? It's a selfless heart. It's a generous heart. It's a self-denying heart. Let me recategorize it for you, saying the same thing a different way. It's a heart that says, you know what, I belong to this Christ, and every single day gets up and by the power of His Spirit says, you know what, I'm crucifying this. Life as I I would live it if there was no God, so that I can live life for the God I know lives and lived and died for me, and his name is Jesus. And that is the meaning-filled life. That is the purpose-filled life. That is the joy-filled life, but it's not always an easy life. And we can all of us testify to that. It can, at times, be really, really difficult, and at times it involves suffering, and at times It involves taking that which we really worship, irrespective of what we say, and doing what with it? Crucifying it so that we can actually worship the the Lord Christ in our lives. One of the things that Calvin said, one of the many amazingly brilliant things that Calvin said, he said about the human heart, he said, the human heart is an idol factory. We are constantly manufacturing idols. We just, we are. We're constantly manufacturing them. Constantly. And they constantly need to be crucified. But that's a difficult thing to do. Look, when your identity, irrespective of what you say, oh, my identity is in Jesus, you know, unless my business fails or unless my boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with me, in which case I'm not just sad, I'm not just disappointed, I'm devastated, I'm destroyed because that's where my identity really was. Or my security is, it's in Jesus. And then the stock market crashes and I am not just insecure, I'm crushed. Get the idea, my comfort, my life. It's in Jesus, it's in Jesus. And then the Lord brings things into our lives that really betray the reality of that. God comes to us by His gospel and He comes to the world and through His gospel He says, listen, here's one of the things that you have to do to follow me. You have to forsake your idols. But when our identity or our security or our comfort or our life is really and truly about that idol and it's wrapped up in that thing, listen, the idol doesn't just feel threatened. I do too. And what is the response of humanity as we feel threatened? We're going to come out swinging. We get angry when things 
impinge a little too much on us. That's what happens to Paul in Ephesus. He's coming out in a city full of idolatry, just like Corinth, temples and whatnot all over the place. And he's preaching a gospel in which he's saying, guys, those gods are not actually gods. And you need to forsake your idols in favor of the true and the living God. And the people who worship those idols, as we're now going to see, get really, really angry and even mobilize their efforts. For Luke says in verse 24 that this great disturbance was created, so here's the ringleader, by a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. So Artemis was the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus. She resided in a temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was supported by 120 columns, 60 feet tall, each one of them. It was entirely ornamented by the greatest sculptors in antiquity. It was stunningly amazing. And this guy and a whole industry of other guys that he gathers, as we'll see next, made their living off of Artemis. People from all over the world came to see one of these seven wonders of the world to worship Artemis or at least to take in her temple. And so this guy's deal was little silver shrines. Oh, so you've come, you want a little silver shrine. It's like you can take a little Artemis home with you, if you will. Worship her from afar. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, who Luke notes, by the way, brought no little business to all the craftsmen in Ephesus, not just Demetrius. And then we read that these, meaning all of these craftsmen, all of the people in this industry, Demetrius gathered together along with the workmen in similar trades. And he said to them, he said, men, you know that from this business we have our what? Because this is their real God. No question. We have our wealth. Demetrius doesn't care about Artemis. He's going to pay lip service to her in a second. He doesn't care about Jesus. That's for sure. But he recognizes something, that Jesus is a threat to his wealth. Have you recognized that? Because I'm going to state it very plainly. He is. He absolutely is. And if that's what you worship and serve, he's going to say, listen, daily, you know what? You need to lay that at my feet. And then we're going to do with it what I decide to do with it. And if in your heart you're going, hey, man, this is exactly the kind of message I don't like to hear. Think about it. Demetrius gathers up all these guys and he's like, look. We got an issue. Gentlemen, you know that from this business, we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this this guy, this preacher of this gospel has persuaded and turned away a great many people from worshiping Artemis and therefore from buying what we produce. And Paul has done this by saying that gods made with hands, like Artemis, are not, well, gods at all. And so there is danger, he says, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, we might lose our money and our business as a result, but but then also, and now here comes his false piety, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, even though it's one of the seven wonders of the world, okay, may be counted as nothing. Talk about hyperbole. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And now notice what happens, because it's the same thing that happens to us, if we're honest, when somebody comes and goes, hey, let's talk about this. And you're like, yeah, that's the one I don't want to hear about. You know, nah, it's okay. What happens? When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, the idea being over and over again, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city that had a population of roughly 250,000 people was then filled with confusion 
and they rushed together into the outdoor theater of their city, which sat about 24,000 in the seats. The idea of fill, being filling it, and they dragged with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel, and, you know, probably they saw him on the street or something on the way to the theater. Or maybe these guys, you know, walked up to buy a snow cone, you know. It's like, what's going on? And the next thing you know, they're getting carted off to the theater with this enraged crowd. And then we read, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples of Jesus in that city of Ephesus would not let him. Why? Because they knew for a fact that that crowd would literally beat him to death. You will die if you go in. And even some of the Asiarchs, some of the high-ranking officers and officials of this province of Asia, who were friends of Paul, sent a message to him because they knew his heart, and his heart is, I'm going in. They're like, oh man, I know he's going to want to come over here, and that's when he's going to die. So they sent him a message urging him not to venture into the theater. And you're like, okay, so then what happened? Well, then what happened is the town clerk entered into the theater and said, hey guys, let's think about what's happening here, because this is what you call, or at least what the Roman Empire calls, a riot and they don't respond kindly to riots. If word makes it back that this kind of thing happened in our city, there will be serious, including financial, ramifications to this. And so let me tell you what is actually in your best interest. It's to forget about Paul for the moment and go home. So he sends them all home, having spoken some sense into him. But Paul escapes the city then with his life, after which, with suffering on his mind, with life and death on his mind, with the cost of following Jesus on his mind. Okay, then Paul writes 2 Corinthians, in which he begins, I think pretty understandably, with a discussion of the topic of suffering, and in which he asks and answers, at least in part, two very important questions. Question number one, why does God allow us to suffer? Question number two, all right, well, where do we find hope in the midst of our suffering? So with suffering on his mind, he begins 2 Corinthians by saying this, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all of the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now having finished his introductory comments, he's now going to enter into this discussion of suffering, but he begins it, and I think this is really helpful, with a word of praise. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a word of resentment. Paul's life was not easy. And here's what it would have been easy for Paul to do. He could have said, good grief, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, I am founding churches all over the place. I am writing the New Testament. I am bringing thousands. And indeed, my ministry will go on for millennia and bring hundreds and millions of people to faith in Jesus Christ. Can you cut me a little slack? I mean, like if life should be easy for anyone, don't you think that but he knows better. What did Jesus say? He said, listen, if this is the way they treat the master, what should the servants expect? Simple? Easy? Inexpensive? Cakewalk? Paul has suffered massively, and he knows that he will yet again suffer massively. He will, or he did, as we'll hear in a second, actually think this is it, I'm going to die, which is kind of intense. But he comes out of the gate praising the Lord. And I think what he's saying to us is, listen, the right response for a Christian 
to everything that happens to you in life, good and bad, and including suffering, even to the point where you despair of life, is always praise. And it's always worship. It's just, that's thinking properly. And it's not, you know, that fake phony, oh, dear Jesus, you know, I'm so happy that my life is falling apart. You know, don't say that, okay? Oh, Lord, I'm in pain. Bring me more pain so I can convert it to praise. I mean, that sounds like a cheesy bumper sticker. That's terrible. Nobody's buying that. Oh, Lord, leave me in the darkness because in the darkness, yes, that, Lord, is where I feel your presence most acutely and, and, and want to worship you the most. No, that's not true. It's where you least feel his presence, maybe not even at all and are least motivated to worship Him. I think it's praise that, that goes more like this. Oh Lord, I will praise You in tears even though my life is falling apart because You are greater than everything that's happening in my life. Because I trust in Your unseen promises to somehow redeem this in ways that I cannot even begin to imagine. And because you come to me and you say things like, hey, guess what? For all of eternity, and I know that you can't get your mind around this, but I'm infinite, you're finite, so don't forget that either. For all of eternity, you will actually worship me in thankfulness for all of the good that you cannot see, but that in fact I will bring through this. Trusting that, even now when I cannot see it, I will praise you. I think it sounds like that. I think it sounds like, oh Lord, I will praise you in and through my pain. And here's why. Because your word has secured and your son has guaranteed that a day is coming, maybe in this life, hopefully in this life, I'd like for it to have been yesterday, not going to lie, but, but really a day is coming when that pain will end. And here's how it will end. It will end for forever and it will end in eternal glory. That is the pattern of my Savior and that is the pattern of my life and yours if you're a believer in Jesus. So then knowing that, I will praise you, Lord, I will praise you even in the darkness when I cannot see any light at all. And here's why. Because I know that light exists. It's like the stars, you know. I mean, some night you walk out onto your back patio and you look up and the sky is clear and you can see the stars and it's amazing. And you just, I mean, if you think about it, how powerful is that light? It's penetrating darkness from, I mean, how many hundreds of billions of jillions of miles away all the way to your eye. Talk about powerful. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And some nights you walk out and the sky is completely shrouded with clouds. You can't see the stars that transcend those clouds that are nevertheless still shining, but you know they are, don't you? They shine all of the time. Lord, I will praise you even in this darkness, knowing that light exists. It's shining. And that for forever, for forever, I will live in your light. I'll have an existence in which there's nothing but light. And so Paul begins this discussion on suffering with a word of praise. And then he describes the God that he's praising when he calls him the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And you say, well, how did Paul come to know God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort? And I'm glad you asked because this is part of the answer to the question of why God allows us to suffer in the first place. And the answer to the question is to teach us things. Suffering is an amazingly awesome teacher. You learn things through suffering that you would not learn any other way. How would Paul know that God is the Father of mercies apart from his own painful need for mercy? 
How would he know that God is the God of all comfort apart from his own painful experience in which he needed comfort? I mean, it's suffering is an amazing and incredible teacher. Which means, to use a phrase that I've used here in the past, that you will waste your suffering if your only goal in the midst of your suffering is to just get through it. Let's just keep our heads down. Let's just keep running. Grit your teeth. Suck it up. We're going to get through it. We're going to get to the other side. We're not going to consider it. We're not going to evaluate it. We're not going to learn from it. And we're certainly not going to embrace it. Now, that's not the goal. That's not what a Christian does. A Christian who serves a providential God who governs over and ordains everything recognizes that God has ordained this too and says, Lord, I don't like it. I wouldn't have chosen it. I'd like for it to have been over yesterday. Today, I'd take it. Tomorrow, I'd even sign up for that if we can make a deal. Once I'm through this, I don't want to come back. Just want to let you know that up front. But you're doing this. So I can fight it or I can embrace it. Teach me the lessons that you have for me in this. Teach me the one. Teach them quickly. Please, teach them quickly because I'd like to get it over with. But let this have its full effect on me. Teach me the lessons that you have for me in this, that I might not have in some sense suffered in vain, but that I might have learned everything that you have for me in this season of suffering that you've specifically designed to be my teacher and to teach me lessons that you know are of far greater value than the cost that I'm paying through the course of this suffering. which means that you will waste your suffering. As I said, if your only goal in the midst of it is just to get through it, as opposed to embracing it. So Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's whole conversation couched in worship. Oh, and here is this God, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. But why does he do that? Because this too is instructive. And it's not just for us. We're so egocentric. It's all about me. No, 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 it's not. Partially, but no. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to turn around and comfort those other people in our lives who are in any affliction, but with what? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You're like, okay, kind of with you on that. Let me explain it by just telling you a couple of stories of people that I know. So I've got a dear, dear friend. After last Sunday's message where I talked about Hall of Fame, I saw him and I said, you're in it, man. And, uh, and he is. But about seven or eight years ago, this guy hit rock bottom. I mean, as low as you can go. He was professionally a very highly functioning alcoholic. He was in major, major depression and big time anxiety and despairing of life. And so we gathered a couple guys and I around this guy. We laid hands on this guy. We prayed for this guy. We read scripture over this guy. And over time, not overnight, God delivered this man. And through a variety of means, he delivered this man. So much so that like two years later, he and his wife came to my office. They made an appointment like they'd have to do that. But they came in and he said, look, we're here because we feel like God has brought us through this, but he hasn't brought us through this just for us. I mean, like we're real happy <laughs> that he's done this in our lives, but, but we recognize that he's done this so that he might use us in the lives of other people. Where does that come from? That comes from this study, this verse, this passage. That's it. He said, so look, when you're dealing with people who are despairing of life, deep darkness, depression, anxiety, all of that stuff, we're not counselors, we're not professionals, we can help them with that. But here's who we are. We're people that have experienced this kind of deliverance. Send them to us. We'll take them out to dinner or something or 
hang out with them. You know, and if they're married to somebody who's wrestling with this, he said, my wife knows what that's like. Let us serve this couple. That's cool. I think of our own Dee Prieto, who I should have given a heads up to because she's here. But she founded a ministry called Trees of Hope. Healing the past, protecting the future. You're like, yeah, but with regard to what? With regard to sexual abuse. She goes out and her team members go out and they do all kinds of training at schools and businesses and churches and whatnot, various organizations. How do you help your child not experience this? How do you protect the future from this? But the other thing that they do, they've taken hundreds, thousands of people through a journey of healing, people who have been impacted by this. And it is an impactful deal. And so many of you know exactly what I mean. And it shows up in your life in a variety of different ways that you're not even really aware of. It's like, how is that? So that's related to, well, when you go through healing, you'll you'll realize that, oh, this is why I do this, and this is why I feel like this, and this is, it's really, really a big deal. Well, where did that come from? It came out of Dee's own experience of sexual abuse, her own walk through this journey of healing. At which point, at some point, the Lord said, okay, now here's the deal. I didn't do this just for you. I did this for what I want to do through you. Which means that you will waste your suffering. And please don't take this the wrong way, but if you're too proud in some sense to come forward with your issues and to then be introduced to people like this man and this woman that I talked about or or like Dee or like a hundred other people who have a hundred other issues who can come to you and be God's instrument of deliverance in your life. And you will waste your suffering too if having been delivered, you're too proud to share it. For as Paul now explains, beginning in verse 5, he says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And what is he talking about there? He's saying, look, as we bring the gospel to the world, I mean, some people are going to go, wow, this is the most amazing, incredible thing that I've ever heard. I'm all in. Where do I get baptized? Do I have to be dunked or not? A whole different sermon. But no, I mean, really, like, I'm in. Let's go. And some people are going to be like, yeah, this is a threat to me. Not everybody responds in a positive way. There's resistance to the gospel. There was for Jesus. There was for the apostles. And there is for us, too. But as we share abundantly, that's a big word in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. And that comfort is most often, I think, brought to us by the Spirit, but through other people. And that's kind of what he's saying. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure in the city of Corinth, which was famous also for its idolatry, the same kind of sufferings that we suffer here in Ephesus for calling people to do the same thing, which is to forsake their idols and to come follow Jesus. He says, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in sufferings, you will also share in comfort. And then speaking specifically to that event that we looked at in Acts that happened there in the city of Ephesus, he says, let me tell you what's happened. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, Paul says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We had resigned ourselves to the fact that, guys, this is it. We're done. That suffering 
But what did that suffering do? Well, it did what it was intended to do. It taught him a lesson. He goes on and says, but that sentence of death was given to us to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who even if your life ends as a result of your suffering, does what? He raises the dead. So like, what can happen to you then that will preclude the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you? Nothing. Absolutely not. Not not even death can prevent his grip on you, his reach to you. He continues and he says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again, he says, even if only by resurrection is the point. And now don't miss this because it's the answer to question number two. Where do we look to or where do we find our hope in the midst of our sufferings? He says, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And then he closes by calling us to pray for one another in the midst of our sufferings and saying, hey, guess what? That actually matters. It makes a difference, and we need to be faithful in that. He says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing that will, in fact, is the idea, be granted to us through the prayers of many. And so Paul goes through what he did there in the city of Ephesus. He escapes from the city of Ephesus. He says, oh, I've got to write a letter to these guys in Corinth. And what's on his mind? Suffering. And he asks and answers two questions. Why does God allow us to suffer? Why? To teach us lessons? That's answer number one. But also so that having delivered us, He might then use us as instruments of deliverance in the lives of other people. We can't take our deliverance and keep it to ourselves. So if you're going to interact with the Bible and what He's teaching you, you've got to kind of stop. And I mean, let me ask you, how are you responding to whatever suffering you're going through now, if in fact that's where you're at in life, you know? Are you praising God through the midst of it, clinging to His unseen as yet promises? Or are you resenting God? It's something to work through. It's something to think about. Are you gritting your teeth and just kind of hoping to get through it? Or are you saying, okay, Lord, I don't like it. I wouldn't have chosen it. I'd like to have it over yesterday. You know all of that. So here's the deal. I don't want to waste this. Let me feel the full of it. Let let me learn everything that you have for me in this season. Teach me these lessons. Teach them to me because I know that you know that they're more valuable to me and to your kingdom as I then turn around and teach them to others than the cost of this suffering. And then how are you using your suffering and all that you've learned to help other people because God did not deliver you for you or teach you things just so that you can keep those lessons to yourself, but, but in humility to give them to the Lord. They're a tool in His hand too and to use them to help other people. So question number one, why does God allow us to suffer? Number two, where do we find hope in the midst of our suffering? And I hope the answer to that is obvious. It's in the Father of mercies. It's in the God of all comfort who does what? who has the capacity and indeed will, in the end, raise us from the dead. That is a powerful God. That's the God who is to be at the center of our being, our identity, our security, our comfort, our life. So then, who or what, if anything, are you worshiping other than that God? And here's a clue. Okay, what makes you angry? What do you you not want to talk about? You know, like, oh, good grief, he's going to mention that. You know, I mean, really. Think about that. And then how's your prayer life? Because we pray to a God who can even raise the dead and indeed has in Christ. 
And he comes to us and says, look, this mysteriously moves the hand of heaven. And you need to pray for one another. Pray for your family. Pray for those who are persecuted and who are suffering. And solicit their prayers for you. So there you go. That's the beginning. You can chew on that this week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do praise you for the Apostle Paul. Uh, for this amazing, incredible man who for your glory you raised up and did so very much through. We praise you for his wisdom and, and the knowledge that you've given to him. We praise you for the humanity that we can relate to in him, even as we can in our Savior. Lord, we come to you with our stuff, with our suffering, with things that we've endured in the past, things buried, things out in the open, things that we'd like to hide but can't because they're so big at times. We bring them to the only one who can do anything with them and indeed does. We pray that through a word like this and an example like this of Paul, that you might give us a different perspective, that you might, Lord, renew our minds in regard to what we're going through, that you might help us to live lives that do not waste our suffering, but instead use it however you see fit. Teach us the lessons in it. Help us to use those lessons in the hope that we've found, the deliverance, Lord, perhaps that you've brought, or maybe even that we're still waiting for to help other people. God, let us not waste our suffering and attach us to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.